Blog Talk Radio. Part four of Morgan Patton was kidnapped and murdered. This happened on November 8, 2019. She grew up in New Hampshire where the statistics show 3.05 missing persons per 100,000 for 2021 and 42 cases into 2021 and that's just up to September missing persons in New Hampshire. Morgan was living in Massachusetts when she went to see her fiancé in North Carolina. Statistics in Massachusetts show 2.2 per 100,000 go missing. But the population of Massachusetts is much more, today, much more. And to date of September 2021, from the beginning of the year, there was a total of 155 missing persons. Again, this is 2021. Now let's go to North Carolina which is where Morgan was kidnapped and murdered. And the statistics are 4.11 per 100,000. 429 missing persons in 2021 up to the month of September 2021. So there's more than two times the likelihood of being kidnapped in North Carolina and than in Massachusetts. As of September 2021, early this year, earlier this year, and that was this was written in 2021, mind you, okay? North Carolina ranked ninth in the nation for reports of human trafficking cases, up two spots from 2019. So it was 2000, in 2019, it was 11th, according to the National Human Trafficking Hotline. So far... In 2020, the hotline, this was in 2020, the hotline has received 385 calls from North Carolina victims and survivors, plus 266 new reports of cases in North Carolina. Can't dismiss the fact that there is a great deal of human trafficking going on. It is estimated that 40-plus million people are currently trafficked worldwide, and a majority are women and children. I'm Tanya Hathaway, and I'm your host. I'm Tanya Talks, where your voice is heard and your stories told in Marty Oakley's TS Radio Network and Stephen Burke's 89.9 KLRB-FM Lighthouse Christian Radio. It is Sunday, March 13, 2022. Renee and Stephen Patton joined us once again in part four of this heart-wrenching story where their daughter was kidnapped and murdered in North Carolina. Now, if you missed parts one to three of the series, you'll find the archives on the promotion and the link to the page where you found this show on Journeys to Justice Facebook page. If you can't find the link, you can feel free to just shoot out an email to me at journeys to justice at outlook.com. 
Again, I'm Tanya Hathaway, and I'm your host tonight. Good evening, Renee and Steve. Thank you for being with us once again. And I can't imagine how hard this must be for you to talk about, but you certainly have been clear and concise with this story on the show, and I appreciate you for being here with us each week as you have been that we continue this series. We appreciate you. Uh, would you mind letting our listeners know where they can find the personal side to your story on the webpage that you set, set up? Um, so hi, hi Steve and hi Renee. I, I just want to always get that repeated that, you know, your miles from, from Morgan. Yes. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Tanya, for having us back. And we, you can sh- find Morgan's story um, updated uh I'll say fairly regularly by Renee and, uh, and myself um, at morgansmilestogo.com. Um, that's all one word, all lowercase, morgansmilestogo.com. Okay, thank you. And before we and before we bring on our our special guest and expert. Sarah Stein, um, I wanted to also ask you, is there something that you would like us, do you have any updates on the case that you would like to share with our, our audience who's been listening and following this? Since, since last we spoke, the only new information that we have received is from the District, the, uh, district Attorney Ernie Lee in North Carolina. We received a letter from Attorney Lee stating that, uh, and he did not use the word expedite, but he said, we are going to trial uh, likely this spring against Hunter Wells for the charge of, of felony death by a motor vehicle. He was the driver the night that Morgan was killed. And just a few days ago, we received an email from the prosecutor, Caroline Wayhoff, stating that there is a, a hearing scheduled for March 15th, but she has not... They've, they've, she and the defense attorney for Hunter Wells have not um, compared schedules yet to set a date for trial so that he won't have to appear and it'll, there'll be a continuance on the 15th of March. So, so mm-hmm. nothing new as far as date of trial, but it will be scheduled likely for this late this spring. Okay. I'd say if it's going to be March 15th, they better get a move on it. No, it won't. We, it won't be March fifteenth. Yeah. No, there will no, be a no I understand. Sometime this spring, and and honestly, I I'll take this opportunity to say that we are not very comfortable with the fact that it's being uh, being pushed. You know, I'll I'll use the word expedited at this point because the investi- is in our minds the investigation is not done. I agree. I agree. And we're going to touch on that tonight too. Yeah, yeah. And and as far as um, and, and, and in what ways do you feel that the investigation is not done? Would you like to share? Oh, I, I don't know where to start. <laughs> in in yeah, honestly, the investigation was ever begun. I, I, I could. Right. I could go through a laundry they list it of before they started it when they, when they they cleared up the road. Right. I, I could go through a, a laundry list of things that weren't that were not done by investigators in North Carolina, including simple such simple things as speaking to the third roommate that lived with Hunter Wells and Charles Cornwall. Nobody ever questioned him about what he might know or what he had been told. 
or what he knows about the activities of November 8, 2019. It's as if he never existed, but we know he existed. Still, he still exists. That's not exactly, yeah, yeah, that's that's not dotting your I's and crossing your T and leaving every stone unturned, is it? And that's exactly what their job is to do. And that's what we were told they would do in those exact words. We will leave no stone unturned. And as far as the investigation, they never found a stone to turn over because they weren't looking. And I'm sorry to sound harsh, but I'm speaking the truth from the family of the victim's perspective. Well, it's it's I I know it's your perspective, but it's not just perspective. There are there are facts involved that would lead one to believe or know that uh, the investigation has not been as thorough as it should be. And maybe we can cover some of that during the show tonight. You know, while we have Sarah on with us. Um, but we're going to talk quite a bit about kidnapping uh, tonight and the, and the profile of um, you know, somebody who would do something like like this. So also joining us is well-revered expert and PhD Sarah Stein, who I warmly welcome with great admiration, and I'll ask her to share some of her background and expertise with us, with us herself instead of me uh, doing that for her. So welcome on board. How are you, Sarah? And it's nice to uh, to get a chance to talk with you again. Yes, it is. Thank you so much, uh, Tanya, for having me this evening. And Steve and Renee, hello. Hi, Sarah. Um, and thank you to both of you for uh, having confidence um, in me to speak for Morgan, to help speak for Morgan on this incredibly painful journey. You have uh, so, you've become very endearing to us, Sarah. And uh, as I have told you, Personally, we, I feel guilty that I'm going to the well too many times when I call you with questions, but it, I absolutely admire the strength that you've given us. It's a tremendous, tremendous gift you've given us. Well, you've given me one as well, and that's to come to know Morgan. So thank you. Well, in case our listeners haven't figured it out by now, <laughs> Sarah has worked in depth with this case. So, Sarah, can you please let our listeners know, um, you know, what you, what you do and the types of cases that you work on and, you know, what led you up to this? Sure. Um, so, uh, primarily... And I know you don't uh, like I... to brag. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I know you don't like to brag because, you know, you, you, you know we, we had a conversation about it. But I need you to a little bit here. <laughs> <laughs> the type of work that I do, I primarily consult for law enforcement on, uh, on cold case investigations. Uh, but um, when Steve uh, came to me, Morgan, uh, her spirit just leapt right out of that email. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, I was just um, overcome and really wanted to help get answers uh, for Morgan and for her family and for Phil and her community. Uh, so what I do uh, is called a crime assessment. 
and I look at uh, different elements uh, that are involved in the crime, uh, ranging from the victimology, which is the study of the victim, to uh, a behavioral analysis of uh, persons of interest uh, that have been identified in the investigation uh, and uh, steps for moving the investigation forward, I guess, in a nutshell, is what I do. Okay, so that's great. That's great description of what you do. Um, and Sarah, so just as you, in, in, in a sense, like, is it fair to say you profile the perpetrator? Isn't that true that the perpetrator, in essence, profiles the victim too? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, professionals um, in the field, once uh, criminal minds rolled around, uh, they got really, uh, the term profiling became very unpopular in the field. Um, so typically uh, now called behavioral analysis, just if we're, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. But uh, predators, uh, particularly in these types of cases, uh, will absolutely, quote unquote, profile a victim uh, and they will select uh, that person for any number of reasons, uh, opportunity, uh, physical characteristics uh, that appeal. Uh, it depends on uh, really the pathology of the perpetrator. Which we will get, we will get into. Um, and while I was doing so much research, um, just on, in preparing for this, this show, you know, when you're looking at missing persons, you can't help but see all of the human trafficking statistics, which, you know, talked about on other show, shows before. And, you know, people are abducted, kidnapped, and whatnot for human trafficking purposes, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, through inducing, recruiting, harboring, you know, through force, fraud, coercion, you know, and and those those things are used for kidnapping, for you know whether it's for uh, as a, as a business or for personal pleasure. What what do you see, if anything, that are the distinct differences between somebody who's going to, you know, in their pathology, Sarah? with somebody who is going to kidnap for their own personal desires mm -hmm. versus versus um, running a business, Here. running a cartel. Right. Right. Well, you just, you put your finger on it uh, right there in what you said, that human trafficking is almost surpassed uh, its, lucrative um, sell uh, in the sense that it's almost the most profitable business on the planet now mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. over drugs, uh, over weapons. Uh, humans are the commodity, which is yes. truly appalling and sick, but it is the reality of children. the situation mm -hmm. and children in particular and particularly with and certainly not to get political on this show, but with the open borders that we have now in this country, 
the child right. trafficking and human trafficking in general have become exponentially worse with this administration. But that being horrifying. said, it's absolutely horrifying. It's unimaginable and unconscionable that anyone would consciously make that decision to increase the profitability of people who deal in the business of selling children and women, mm-hmm. primarily for sex. It is, yeah. it's unconscionable. Uh, but those people, mm-hmm. the people who uh, participate in human trafficking are exactly that. They're business people and they are professional and they do not typically make mistakes. And they're certainly not as, shall I say, sloppy as the individuals that we are dealing with in this particular instance. Okay. Okay. All right. I just wanted to, I wanted to go through that. I wanted your, your opinion on that because, you know, you're reading and, uh, you know, about all this and yeah, there are too many mistakes. I believe in this instance that there were, uh, that it was not uh, what happened Morgan uh, was beyond horrific, but it was not, I do not think, um, an organized right. effort on the part of a larger entity that might have okay. been involved in that type of activity, though it is a possibility, but I do not think that's what happened. Okay. Well, you're the you're the one. You're the expert. So you're the one who you know did the pathology, you know, on on these guys. So let's let's get into that a, a bit. Um, you made many. You made some recommendations and you drew some conclusions as to uh, as to uh, the the. Uh, likelihood you know that that uh morgan was was kidnapped and we know this through many different factors that we've discussed on the show before but you know morgan was very careful she was selective she did all the right things that were the safe measures to you know go to applebee's that night um one of the things that made her, in my opinion, and I'm sure yours, and, uh, particularly uh, vulnerable, was the fact that she was from out of town. And, you know, she was not afraid to say that because she was so excited to see her fiancé, Phil, you know? Right. And you, you think that you're going to say that and you're going to feel protected by, that, by the warmth of that knowledge, uh, but that was taken advantage of. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with that. Okay. So what is it that you saw about, uh, let's start with Hunter Wells um, and, and his personality, and, and what, are the, what are the reasons that, uh, see, we're honing in on this tonight, listeners, because uh, so far kidnapping has not been charged. Kidnapping has has not been charged, even though there's every reason to believe that Morgan was kidnapped. So right. we're going to talk about uh, the, the kidnapping aspect and and uh, and the personality, the type of person that's going to you know participate 
in this, you know, from their background to, you know, to their their jobs, you know, their careers, um, to any problems that they've had in their marriage, their careers, and things like that. So um, what is it that you would say about Hunter Wells that you've learned? Well, so, and please forgive me, Tanya, because I don't want to uh, to interrupt the, the flow of the show or or any topics that we have planned, but uh, I would prefer to, if it's all right with you, to speak uh, from the perspective of the victimology in this case, from Morgan's perspective, to show uh, to show what uh, the evidence is to support the assertion that she would not willingly enter into okay. any situation. Uh, with these Let's two individuals, what, okay. if that's all right You interrupt any time, okay, because trust me, I do. So <laughs> I want you to interrupt any time, and, and I want to do this your way, okay? This is, this is, we're just honored to have you on here. So why don't, if I don't need to ask the leading questions, then that's fine. I know you've got plenty to say. So let's go well, for it. Yeah, the, the only reason I uh, I say that uh, here in this context is that a very uh, critical element of the crime assessment process is not uh, speaking to anything uh, in public about the perpetrators. Uh, you know, we just don't want them to be inadvertently listening in and discover something okay. that we'd rather have them not. Um, okay. But you know, the reason we don't want to do anything. Uh, um, Morgan, she uh, she struck me as such an unusual young person uh, in the sense that she had all the sensibility in the world around her about her surroundings and about the people whose company she was in, and she was always very deliberate and careful with her safety. And, you know, most instances where crimes like this occur, um, you know, and certainly not to uh, point fault or to find fault in any victim by any means whatsoever, but, um, you know, oftentimes with crimes like these, you'll find victims who, you know, we're just not aware of their surroundings and they didn't anticipate any danger befalling them. And so, uh, you know, they just made young and naive choices. And I think we've all been guilty of that at some point in our lives. Uh, But Morgan took every proper precaution she possibly could, uh, you know, going directly from the hotel to the restaurant and making that deliberate decision to walk underneath the streetlights to get there. And then as soon as she got there, she let people know that she was from out of town, that she was here to see her fiancé. And so she made it quite clear, you know, that she was there for a purpose. And, uh, you know, but unfortunately, you know, she may not... uh, she may not have realized, and she did not realize, and why would she, that anyone would use that to make her a target. But as you said, she was from out of town, and I think that that did play a role. Right, 
Right. Right. And she was out from out of town, and, you know, it's been said that she wasn't afraid to talk about it. And, and um, so, so you don't want to talk about any of the personalities of the perpetrators then? I, if you'd like, I can give listeners a general perspective of, uh, yeah. you know, the different typologies of offenders uh, that we're possibly dealing with. As, yeah, as opposed to directly, you know, linking yeah. it to these guys. But yeah, okay, let's do, let's let's do that then. Um, okay. Because we, uh. yeah, what, yeah, what what is it that would would you know make Morgan the the magnet, right? Or somebody well, a magnet? Yeah. And, well, and again, as. Um, as I was saying earlier, it has a lot to do with the particular typology of these offenders. And, you know, one thing that is, uh, that I will say, uh, that's interesting about this particular investigation is that we're dealing with uh, two individuals who were active duty uh, in our service uh, when this crime occurred. Uh, and there are two uh, different um, pathologies of offenders uh, that the military seems to, um, uh, we do see military background more frequently with these uh, types, two different types of offenders. Um, and those are uh, anger-based uh, offenders versus power-based uh, offenders that um, are not looking for the same thing when they commit a crime. So it, the fact that there is military involved here, uh, it it is a little interesting in that sense when dealing with these typologies. I read an article earlier uh, today about, um, it's, it's called Looking Through the Eyes of a Kidnapper. Kidnappers don't have guilt and feelings for others, other people, but they make themselves believe that they have normal feelings. Oh, this can yeah. be a constant, con- yeah, okay, yep. You, you hit yep. a really interesting point there. When I was teaching, uh, I had a student who, he made such a brilliant, observation he said so these types of offenders can't typically experience empathy and I said no they they have no capacity for empathy and he said but they use it as a weapon right and it just struck me that comment no one had ever said that so directly before and it was so startling because it is 100% 100% true that though these people, a vast majority of them, have no conscience whatsoever and no ability to feel empathy with another human being, they are, they're chameleons. And they're right. quite adept at mimicking emotion. And so one of the best examples I can give you of that is uh, Ted Bundy. And 
in his crimes. Um, you know, for listeners who might not know who that is, you know, he was a very prolific serial killer um, in the late 60s, 70s, and um, he would target college-age females. Um, and he, the, how he would procure his victims is by either putting his arm in a sling or his leg in a cast, and he would go to a college campus and just wait for a young lady who was empathic to say, oh, can I help you? Do you need help with your books? And that's how he would do that. And it is terrifying at how remorseless these people are, but how they can at the same time use a person's very core of empathy as a weapon against them. Right, right. That's that's so scary. It's like what we tell our kids, you know, is, is, you know, you don't go with strangers looking for little lost puppy dogs. (laughs) Right. Because you never know who they're they're going to be. Um, Yeah. And if you've got a nice person on the other end, they're not going to automatically think the worst of you. Um, no, but it, it, this article also said that most of these people have personality disorders. And these disor- disorders are generally marked by people who cannot feel their emotions as well as the emotions of others. So they make decisions and not worry about hurting the emotions of other people. What do you have to say on that? Um, I I agree with that to an extent. I think that. W- Again, it also depends on the motivation for the kidnapping, um, but primarily with stranger abductions, uh, true stranger abductions, the motivation is almost exclusively sexual in nature. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, these predators are not operating at an emotionally sophisticated level because, as it says, they have no capacity to feel those Uh, those types of emotions, but they are operating at a primitive level, uh, a basal level of predation. And that is the space that they're in when these crimes are committed. And uh, that is, it's a feral uh, state and very dangerous. Okay, and and so so you don't think that most people most people that are capable of doing this really think back with a true conscience, right? No, or or do you? Okay, and I don't mean to be putting you know answers in your mouth. So. No, you're okay. not at all. No, they oh. here's what these people seek. So in the power category. They obviously they're seeking power. They want recognition for their power and control, and quite often they're um, very insecure uh, men uh, who are seeking that type of power over another human being. Um, particularly uh, in this instance, a uh, you know a slight gentle, kind young woman. Uh, And then you have those who are anger motivated, who are um, 
I mean, it's just rage that are driving that or that's driving them. So they basically seek to, you know, just destroy uh, that person. Um, but typically there is no guilt. There is no guilt. It's just wanting recognition for what they've done. Okay. Okay. Um and obviously there's more men, and I don't mean this again, obviously, but, but there are more men that do this than women. Is, why do you think that is, and, uh, and do you think it has anything to do with their upbringing, um, their mothers or their fathers, or uh, what are your yeah. thoughts on this? Well, the four typologies of offenders that I'm referring to, the two power and the two anger categories, those were developed um, by uh, two gentlemen uh, named Richard Walter and uh, Bob Keppel. And Bob Keppel uh, was involved in the capture of Ted Bundy and Richard Walter helped to found uh, the VDOC Society, which is an organization that specializes in unresolved cases and they uh, have an extremely high uh, solvability rate um, with the cases that are presented to them. And what they speak to in their model uh, of these offenders is that the offender typologies are applicable to both men and women, but yes, typically uh, males do uh, act out these crimes. There are two different uh, subcategories within these four. Um, one is sexually motivated. One is non-sexually motivated. So for the sexually motivated crimes, absolutely men commit those crimes uh, at a higher rate uh, than mm-hmm. females. Um, and we do uh, see um, some differences between men and women, but really at the root of any pathology uh, of this type of individual is trauma. They themselves have been, and I'm certainly not um, advocating that we, you know, feel sorry for these individuals or, you know, anything like that, but they're almost exclusively in their upbringing, uh, there is some severe trauma that carries through uh, to the later portions of their life and influences their decision to act out uh, in a deviant manner. Okay. Okay. And the trauma usually starts at early childhood. Early childhood, usually uh, it could be, you know, physical, emotional, sexual, a combination of all of those, uh, and it typically is a combination. It's usually not just one thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then in in a case like this, do you think, and I, again, I don't know if this is overstepping, so um, speak up if if I am, you guys, okay? Okay. In a case like this, do you think, you know, because I know we have to preserve the, we have to preserve the case and certain things we don't want to talk about, 
uh, now, uh, you know, out loud, so um, on air. So do you think in a case like this, if there was no car accident, but they overpowered Morgan, do you think she would have lived through this incident? No. No, I do not believe that. I'll leave it. Go ahead, Steve. I'm Steve? sorry. I'm, no, I'm sorry. I, I, I think everybody that has looked closely at this, and especially those that knew Morgan, knew her personality and, and her, mm-hmm. as, as Sarah stated, her deliberateness in everything that she did. Um, in the minds, in Renee and I's minds, there's no doubt that Morgan was not intended to to live through the night. Mm-hmm. We feel very strongly mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I, I, that's where I started, like, looking up missing persons and unsolved and cold cases in, in that area. And, mm-hmm. um, and it just, you know, I'd like to get on the horn with somebody and, you know, in an office you know, that can talk about Jacksonville and those cases in particular there um, or in in that county uh, because it seems as though it was not a, 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 a one-time scenario as we've addressed this before um, on, mm-hmm. on, the, on the show. And is that your feeling too? Um, well, I think... As you alluded to in your opening monologue, all of North Carolina is seeing an uptick in in major crimes, and and human trafficking has become a, a, a an epidemic there. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of major travel corridors in North Carolina, and there are a lot of military installations. And unfortunately, being a military man myself I had said this before it should be the safest place on earth but you know a, a city like Jacksonville there's 53,000 marines there and that's a market for mm-hmm. human trafficking mm-hmm. and it's disgusting to say that but yeah. and nearby there's, there's going to be some bad apples Go ahead. Fort North Carolina the largest military installation in the state is just a couple hours away from Jacksonville, so it's a it's a very large market for a emerging problem. It's and it's disgusting to talk about, but it needs to be it needs to be talked about. It needs to be addressed, and you know a, a lot of the a lot of the elements of human trafficking existed in this case of. Morgan's kidnapping. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I think they need to be addressed together in mm-hmm. these military towns, you know, everywhere mm-hmm. in the world. But but uh, right. a 24-year-old so girl should feel that she's in danger outside of a base where there are 53,000 Marines. No, they, they shouldn't be protecting the bad apples. They need to be 
rooting them out and prosecuting. And unfortunately, you do get the feeling as though there might be some protections going on. And Very very much so. It it seems as though they don't want to admit to the problem, and the problem cannot be fixed until it's recognized. Exactly. Um, So I did a little bit of... uh, of uh, looking up the statutes for kidnapping in North Carolina, and then and then I looked up, you know, uh, the the first and second degree, um, and it, there's less prongs that need to be met for the second degree kidnapping, but it also means that um, the person would have to be uh, released in a in, in a safe manner, and and so. You know, so in that respect, the prosecutors, as far as this, in second degree, in that respect, second degree is is automatically out of the, out of the picture. Second degree kidnapping uh, under North Carolina law of 14 to 39. Um, so uh, it would either have to be kidnapping um, or we've got false imprisonment. And when you've got false imprisonment, um you it actually opens up the door for a civil it gives rise to civil claim for damages and i know that you're doing this not for you know you you want justice for morgan but you've got to get it every way that you possibly can and i know that's what you want to do you know um that false imprisonment means the illegal confinement of one individual without his or her consent by another individual in such a manner as to violate the confined individual's right to be free from restraint of movement. But I also, okay, here's, an, here's something else. This is, this is the part that I put a star next to. An individual alleging false imprisonment may sue for damages for interference with his or her rights to move freely, but she's not here to do that. Um, but an individual alleging false imprisonment through her voice. I don't know. I just, I, I'm looking at the different, you know, kidnapping versus false imprisonment. I know they've got vehicular, you know, death by by vehicular uh how is it, how is it uh, said in North Carolina? What is it exactly said with the statute, Steve? It's a felony death by motor vehicle, or the the, the divider. So there's death by motor vehicle, which is equivalent to vehicular homicide. The right. what what makes it a felony is the the DWI attributed to this case. Okay. That brings okay. it to a felony level. Okay. Okay. I was Tanya to Go ahead. interject just really quickly. I um I just did a little uh poking around for human trafficking uh and I found a pretty startling story uh back from 2021 um and this is May 18th, 2021 and the story is a former marine drugged and prostituted hundreds of women in the Jacksonville and the greater Onslow County area. Um, and this man was sentenced to 30 years in prison. But the quote that really uh, just jumped off the page was uh, from the sheriff's 
uh, and it says Colonel Chris Thomas with the Onslow County Sheriff's Office uh, said sex trafficking impacts the t- entire community. And Colonel Thomas's quote was Onslow County itself runs 11th in the United States for human trafficking. Oh, my God. And further details on that story, that former Marine, his name was Jesse Marks. Yeah. And he, he was arrested in, in January of 2019 and hmm. initially charged with, with running a meth lab in a hotel room in Jacksonville. Um, and it turned into a, a, a massive human trafficking organization that he was, he was operating. The federal investigators on that case were actually quoted as saying the real number was close to 600 women. He pled guilty to three. Oh, my word. So it is not, what a shame. It is not a safe place. And I know that Charlotte is like four hours from there, too, and that's, that's up on the charts there, too. Yes, Charlotte being a, a major hub for air traffic, it's, uh, the transportation is in North Carolina is ideal for human traffic, much much as it is in, in Florida. You know, the major corridors that mm-hmm. you can get yep. out of state uh, very quickly. Yep, and that's why uh, you know I I saw you know I was looking at a map and and. And, you know, I, I saw, you know, it's the outer, it, it's the hub. It's really the hub where, where, the, where it's darker, meaning more people are being kidnapped, being trafficked in those particular areas. And in areas where you wouldn't necessarily think as well. I mean, it, uh, we, we know that the indigenous people and the women and children especially have the highest rate of, of kidnapping and unsolved, you know, murders, um, the, as far as I'm aware. And that's, that's horrific in itself. Um, and those are more isolated places, you know. Um, but as far as the, the child trafficking goes and the, and the, human, the human trafficking goes, uh, this is just, this is absolutely ridiculous. And to, and to have... A marine, a marine area there. You know, you're here. You are a proud marine. You know, uh, and and to think that you can, you can't even send your daughter there and, and 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 not be scared for her. And I know that you guys prepped each other, and you were, you know, you didn't have to worry because she was all prepped. But I'm sure you still worried, didn't you? Well. I, I, I know at least you were in touch throughout. So, um, we, yeah, we kept in. Degree, I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. We we kept in contact with her every every leg of her trip, and you know, I, I shared some as she was traveling. I shared some. Um, I, I'll describe them as horror stories of Jacksonville. You know, uh, news clippings that I found and statistics. And I, I also, I know that she read them because I quizzed her on them when she arrived there and made sure that she had read what I sent her. Renee had traveled with Morgan and taught her how to be safe. Right. Morgan traveled to Italy 
by herself. Stay with a friend, studying abroad. I mean, she she knew how to travel. Yeah. You can go abroad and be safe and navigate another country, and then here you go, North Carolina, and that's it. In North Carolina, the statute uh, GS-14-39 separates kidnapping into two degrees. The person is guilty of first-degree kidnapping when he kidnaps the person and does not release the person in a safe place, or the person who has been seriously injured or sexually assaulted. First-degree kidnapping is punished by a Class C felony. So other examples of of that would be second-degree rape, second-degree sexual assault, embezzlement of 100,000 or more, uh, child abuse resulting in bodily uh, injury. Um, And the sentence is for 484, up to 484 months. So I'm just wondering, you know, um, well, what is it for somebody who's lost their life in uh, kidnapping? would you like to go over some of these areas that need to be more thoroughly investigated? You want to start at the beginning with that, and you know, Sarah, please, please chime in. Uh, I don't want to again overstep with getting into the pathology of um, Hunter Wells and 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 Cornwall, um, and that would cause a bit of a you know a bit of a problem. But um, is there anything more that you want to say about about the case specifically and the personalities of these people um, that would, you know, do something like this? Or you want to get into, you know, uh, have they been in trouble before? Anything like that. I don't I don't want to I don't want to dig. I don't want to keep trying to get answers from you in different ways. You know, but but I just want to make sure that we're getting everything from you that we can, given the circumstances. <laughs> no, of course, of course. I, you know, being uh, in this position is always uh, a difficult thing as a consultant coming in at this juncture because it's, a, you know, it is a delicate tightrope because certainly I do not want to uh, you know, impugn or offend uh, any law enforcement or their efforts or the district attorney thus far in their efforts. Um, it's, you know, it's not my job to play Monday morning quarterback. Uh, however, um, having said that, uh, it, it was very unusual uh, to me that the accident scene, first of all, uh, or the accident occurred that uh, from all reports given and accounts given that that, you know, scene, that accident scene was not preserved, uh, that that was, uh, you know, troubling to see that uh, at the outset of a death investigation. Uh, you know, one quote uh, that Dr. Lee uh, Dr. Henry Lee, you know, one of the gurus of forensic science, always says is, you know, you have one chance to get evidence right. And uh, and 
that that was troubling. That was troubling to see. Um, and it, I just I I find it very unusual. Uh, I understand that district attorneys uh, have to work obviously within the purview of the law, uh, and they can only do so much. Um, but the impression and what I was told by Steve and Renee was that uh, you know. They were going to take a few more steps uh, in this investigation, and so far that has not been done. Uh, and I think, from uh, my perspective of where I sit, that uh, you know, going, uh, it it would behoove investigators to uh, to dig further and to understand Morgan's victimology and to understand her as a person and not just a number in the system and not just, you know, a name on a piece of paper. Morgan is loved and missed and cherished and valued and everyone deserves justice. And, you know, I... And I have no basis, scientific basis for thinking this, but just coming to see Morgan through Steve and Renee's eyes and seeing her through her own actions, she was unbelievably brave and courageous. And I think, I really do think she fought and that accident happened because she was fighting for her life Mm -hmm. and prosecutors and detectives should remember that heroism and they should give her life the respect and dignity it deserves and in death she should and her family, Steve and Renee and Phil and everyone who loved her should be given dignity and justice. And it's just, it's not right. I don't think it's right what's happening here. And even so if they do a, a, a full thorough investigation and then there's nothing to charge regarding kidnapping charges, then that's understood. Then that's understood. So we have cell phones that were not subpoenaed. We have, we have, we have people that weren't, that were not um, interviewed, like you were saying earlier, Steve. Um, You know, and what I'm wondering is, is it too late to actually subpoena cell phones? How long do those records stay for? Or do the companies get rid of them after after a year? You know, do they recycle? You know, I, I'm I'm curious about that. Why wouldn't you just go to their cell phone? Why wouldn't you go to the bartender's cell phone that seems to know these guys? What else? Mm-hmm. There's it, the list is endless. Really, I mean, we can, we there are a few things that we can. We can talk about, um, you know, going back to witnesses that 
should have been interviewed. <clears throat> there were uh, two Marines from Hunter Wells' chain of command that arrived at Naval Hospital to visit with him that night, and our private investigator has spoken with them, but to my knowledge, investigators in Onslow County never did. Uh, Hunter Wells also had a cousin, and I'm not sure whether that cousin was a Marine or just lived in the area, but he also visited the hospital, and he was not spoken to. Um, the simple fact that Charles Cornwall was never, has never been interviewed is the most baffling. Um, that is so baffling, because uh, I think you said that it's your belief that it's not in their records that he had, um, what is it, a type of dementia or whatever, even though it was claimed that he did? Well, he has, he has claimed all along um, to the prosecutor in this case, because he's, he's actually listed as a witness in the, because um, Hunter Wells was also charged with felony uh, serious injury by a motor vehicle. That's an additional charge based on Hunt, uh, Charles Cornwall's injuries. Indeed. So he's listed mm -hmm. as a witness. He was, he was interviewed by the prosecutor as a witness where he stated that he did not use the term, but he described the symptoms of having retrograde amnesia. And it was in turn described to us that he suffered a traumatic brain injury more recently, it was it was actually it was disclosed to us that in his medical records it states that he arrived at Vidant Medical Center in Greenville, North Carolina, when he was he was flown there from the scene, and the list of injuries included a concussion, which I know is on the on the uh, listed as. A traumatic brain injury, but it's you know on the mild side of the chart. And, and in this case, recoverable, right? Yes. Yes. Typically, are recoverable. Okay. Yes, but to our knowledge, and I have asked the question directly to the district attorney's office, um, it does not state in his medical records that he is suffering from retrograde amnesia. I'm not a medical doctor, uh, I, in, but what I have read is that it is extremely rare for a patient to be suffering from retrograde amnesia due to a head injury of any magnitude and not also be suffering from anterograde amnesia, meaning still currently having problems remembering what he did today, not just historic okay. facts in his mind. And he has never complained of symptoms of anterograde amnesia. Okay. Which was so his short-term memory? He's a medical anomaly if he is, in fact, suffering from retrograde amnesia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, so they're just – so, uh, again, this is a failure potentially on – you know the investigators part where they're 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 using hearsay that he can't remember and and maybe that was at the time but why why aren't they talking to him now why aren't they that's what we would like to know 
and I can I can yeah. sum up I can sum up why it troubles us so greatly by simply okay. saying that since November 9th 2019 the day after Morgan was killed it appears to us that the district attorney's office has believed every word that Hunter Wells has told them, every word that Charles Cornwall has told them, and disregarded all of the information that we have shared with them about the person that Morgan was. They have not made an attempt to verify Hunter Wells' statements, and he gave a very brief statement while he was at Naval Hospital late that night, and then, mm-hmm. and then immediately after that invoked his right to remain silent. But they have done, made no effort to verify any of those statements, said, well, Morgan's not here to tell her story, so this is what we have to go with. Right. And it's... That's, well, it's that's unacceptable to us. That's simply unacceptable because us, everybody else that knows Morgan, and some very remarkable people, Sarah Stein being one of them, that have gotten to know Morgan, are, we're, we're all jumping up and down screaming, this is not okay. And and so what about poking holes into their credibility? Because we know that there were, you know, issues with them, you know, uh, you know, we, how can they be deemed credible? Okay, we've got, a, we've got a, a, somebody else's driver's license, right, or licenses. It was a military ID, yes. Oh, okay, or military ID. We've got other behavioral problems. Is that correct, Steve? Uh, yes, certainly. Um, so you start, I, I mean, isn't that what they do? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? You know, is is you know, is that person truly credible? Okay, so Morgan isn't here to tell that she's got you, she's got Sarah, she's got, she's got Jim Lilly, she's got, you know, so many character references, and again, Sarah, as you put it, the, the victimology behind behind it that that should be worth something right there. But what what about going after the credibility of the uh, of the people that gave statements that they are relying upon? That's that's all we're asking for. We're and we're just not I mean Morgan what we Morgan needs an advocate a strong advocate in Onslow County it's um, so I think I brought this up once before the the Vanessa Guillen story from 2020 you know, the poor girl uh, an army uh, she was enlisted in the army and killed at Fort Hood in Texas Nearly everybody heard her name in 2020 and 2021. There was legislation passed in Congress um, offering better protections to enlisted military personnel when when they encounter sexual assault or sexual harassment. But none of us would have ever heard Vanessa Guillen's name 
if her parents had not lived within driving distance to Fort Hood because they immediately went to the gate of Fort Hood every day and they stood there all day, every day, with signs until local media caught wind of what they meant. Started interviewing them at the gate of Fort Hood and then before you knew it, it was a national story. Sure. And they were able to get justice for that poor girl. And mm-hmm. here we are, not, we can't drive to Camp Lejeune every day and we have yet to find a an advocate that will look into this, into Morgan's story that is in Jacksonville or in Onslow County that will demand... They're knocking on the doors every day. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it, sh- it's, it shouldn't be that way. No, it shouldn't. Wow. That's what we're facing. Still, after 28 months. After 28 months. Okay. Let's look at some other gaps um, that that took place in the investigation. Uh, go for it. Well, there's... Um I know it was mentioned once before, but the the firearm that was recovered at the scene was never logged in as evidence, um, never questioned as to why it was there. Right. That was a Marlin 336, right? Correct. Right. Yes. Um, the, uh, this, the simple fact that in Hunter Wells' initial statement there again at, at the hospital, um, he stated they were going, they were, and that explained his reasoning for the rifle being in the truck. They were actually going shooting when they left Applebee's. Um, well, <laughs> everybody has kind of talked their head sideways when they've heard that story, except for investigators. They, they, just, they explained, well, there, there, it does happen to be a range at the end of White Oak River Road. We, our investigators looked into that range and mm-hmm. learned that it, is a, it was privately owned, it was leased to the Department of Defense, and it was n- not open to the public at any time. And it's surrounded by residential ho- houses. So I'm not sure, also, they were not allowed to by um, regulation, they were not allowed to do night fire firing exercises on that range. It was very strict hours. So I'm not sure if these guys knew that there was a range out there or not, uh, but the statement was made that they were going shooting, and nobody has bought into that idea except for the prosecutor. said, that's his story. There is a range out there. Why question it? And I think there are a lot of reasons to question it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And when our when our investigator interviewed Charles Cornwall in Montana, he didn't even buy into that story. He thought it sounded ludicrous. And he made a statement that, well, 
people, he was the follow-up question was, well, what do you think was going on? Why was Morgan in that truck? Where were you going? And he said, well, I'd like to think I'm a nice guy, and we had offered to take her on base, get her on base early to see Phil, you know, see her that night rather than wait until the morning. So the problem with that story is they were 15 miles in the opposite direction when the crash happened, which he could not explain in, a, in a, another follow-up question. But if that were the case, then she was coerced into that truck and then driven 15 miles in the opposite direction. That is the textbook definition of kidnapping. Isn't it interesting that he says he would like to think that I'm a nice guy, so he's trying to be smart in a sense and outsmart because he's already said he can't remember. Exactly. Yeah, but Mm -hmm. uh, even that information, we've shared that information with the district attorney's office, and, you know, it's crickets. Nothing to see here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Morgan would have never fallen for any of any of that going to see Phil early or anything like that because she would have never jeopardized her plans to see Phil. She would have never willingly gotten into anyone's vehicle. Sure doesn't sound that way. It sure she had a plan and that was it. She had her plan, and she was sticking to it. And who's to say that the bartender who had left the bar, right, he had left the bar briefly, who's to say where he really was? He could have been helping getting her in the truck. It's possible. That had come to my mind when uh, I was reviewing, I think. So the, the bartender was uh, he no longer works in Jacksonville, but he is still working for Applebee's. He was he's in uh, somewhere in Texas now working for an Applebee's, and that happened fairly quickly after this incident. That's not and too I'm, suspicious, I'm, is it? I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Trust me, I'm not. I just there mm-hmm. there's just some holes that need to be some gaps that need to be filled. Mm-hmm. Well, there's nothing wrong with being a conspiracy theorist because a lot of conspiracy theorists are spot on. Um, I concur with yeah, that. The, yeah. Yeah. It's it's the things things need to be things those gaps they, it needs to be answered. Why is he gone? Why uh, why was the the scene not kept? you know, secure and, you know, as a, as a crime, crime scene. Where are, where are the records for the phone? Why can't we get this DNA tested again more thoroughly as the DNA facility said that could be done, right? So actually that reminded me there has been a little, a little more information on the DNA. That is one okay. thing that the the prosecutor did follow up on after our meeting with uh, 
with them in December of 21. They, she went back to the state crime lab in North Carolina and asked them if they could attempt to separate that mixed sample of two contributors, and they were able to do so. We haven't seen, we have not seen the report, but it was the information that was relayed to us is 91% of the DNA belonged to Morgan, which is understandable. It was her right. on her person, and 5% of the DNA belongs to they know a male subject. The other 3% they were not able to locate a Y chromosome in that. But so there's 91% is Morgan's. 5% to contributor number two, 3% to contributor number three. Contributor number two is known to be a male. And that's and then that's as far as they went. That's uh, as I'm far as they went, but they could get DNA from from the guys. Right. We've been told there's not enough probable cause for that, which I don't understand. Uh, one of the other things that... Let's see if they're willing to do it. Without, without, What if they're willing to do it? It would be interesting if they'd be willing to do it without there being probable cause. Would you, would you submit to a DNA test? Wouldn't that be something else? Go well, ahead. I'm would, sorry, Steve. I, just one of the other things that... I was just looking through some notes here. And so we spoke about a, a civil suit uh, wrongful death suit. Uh, I'm not sure if it was the last time we spoke or the time before, but anyway, uh, as far as a civil wrongful death suit in North Carolina, we could not find an attorney who would take that case on because of the contributory negligence statute in North Carolina. Given the fact that Morgan had alcohol in her system, uh, it's considered that she was she had c contributed to the situation that caused her death um, oh my goodness there were only there are only four states in the united states that that still have this contributory negligence okay you did bring that up. north carolina being one of them however it was they were looking at the report from the medical examiner where morgan's uh post-mortem BAC was reported to be a 0.13. Mm -hmm. However, and that was her aortic blood that was tested. Uh, however, the level of alcohol in her vitreous humor, based the the uh, liquid in her inside her eyes, which is as as I've read is the most accurate means of testing post-mortem alcohol level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That test came back at a 0 .02. And we, when we questioned the difference, we were told that there's something wonky about the results. That was the word that was used. So we're just going to have to assume she was somewhere in between. Again, that's not okay with us. No. I'd like to know. No. I'd like an explanation for that difference because we know what she had to drink. And when we were told she was a 0.13, it, it, the math didn't add up. Right. It just 
didn't make any sense. Um, she had three drinks and a about a three and a half hour time period, three hours and ten minutes roughly. Mm-hmm. At, at very at the most, she had three drinks. We know we're not. We know that the guys bought her two drinks. We're not sure if she drank them or not. Right. Uh, but if we assume that she drank the beer that she bought herself, a shot, and a beer that they bought her, I don't know how you get to a point one three. Right. In three and a half hours. Right. And have you seen a copy of that report? Yes. The medical examiner's report? Yeah, showing yeah, showing the one point yes. yeah, three. Yeah. We did. And that's and actually that information came to us uh, fairly recently because that's one thing that we chose not to see initially. Right. And then right. said you know, we we got to a point Understandably. We need we need to look at it, but we also we had it filtered through a, a friend of ours, uh, the attorney that we had spoke about before, who was mentoring Morgan, and we asked that she it be sent to her. She removed the photos and send us the rest of the document. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a good friend and that's a good attorney. Yeah, yeah. So would do that that way. I understand. Yes. Yeah. No, we're also our very first meeting with the district attorney's office with the prosecutor, um, not district attorney Lee, but with the ADA Caroline Wayhoff. We were told that there were the security footage from the Baymont Hotel, which shared the parking lot with the Applebee's and is also where Morgan was staying. We were told that the footage was um, there was one camera that there was footage from the other camera facing Applebee's had been broken in a storm a year prior and was never fixed. But the one camera that they had footage from was described to us as unwatchable. And we asked to see it, if if we could at least see a shadow and and maybe pick out mannerisms that we could identify as Morgans. We'd have maybe have some communication. And it wasn't even that good. Right. Her stature and whatnot, yeah. We requested it anyways. And when we saw it, we were stunned to see that there were five hours of crystal clear video where we identified Morgan three different occasions in that in those five hours. The last being when she walked towards Applebee's, but unfortunately the the frame of the shot does not include Applebee's itself. Mm-hmm. But it was crystal clear. You want to talk about wonky. <laughs> yeah, we've never gotten an explanation as to why we were told by the assistant district attorney the victim's advocate and the detective who was leading the investigation at the time all told us that it was unwatchable. That, now, why would they do that? I one of the many things that we would like to know. Okay. What else? Well, so... <laughs> We were also also told in that meeting, that meeting was on December 18th, 2019, and the detective 
who had been assigned the lead on the case, told us that he had not yet been able to speak to Charles Cornwall because he was still in intensive care at Vidant Medical Center in Greenville, North Carolina. We later learned in the interview that our private investigator did with Charles Cornwall that he had been home for over two weeks at that point. Why would they do that? This is careless, 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 or mighty suspicious. And I would say, honestly, to me, it seems like it seems like both. I mean, were they careless, and now they're trying to cover up their careless tracks? Well, that's a, that's a legitimate question. If the if the excuse is well, we can't do the investigation because the investigation needed to start at the scene of the crash, and it unfortunately was handled poorly there, then we need to hear that so we can develop new questions and, and, and try to clear this, that hurdle. Right. But we've not been given that as an explanation. It's right. Literally, we ask these questions and we get no response. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And those are those are clear, good questions that you should be able to ask, and you should expect response rather than a deflection or no answer at all. Mm-hmm. Sarah, to to have two guys in, engage themselves in this in this kind of act activity that you know our our listeners and those following this this case you know this series um you know throughout this this time what does it take for two guys to find out that they're on the same page and that they can that they can do this together and be okay with it you know mm-hmm. what is what kind of camaraderie what kind of uh what does it take for them to figure each other out that okay mm-hmm. we can we we can commit this crime and we know that we're okay with it because this is far different than robbery. It's far, you, you know what I mean? Do you mind right, talking absolutely. about that a little bit? Yeah, mm-hmm. of course. Uh, so it typically uh, when you have partnerships uh, in these types of investigations, uh, there is a dominant party and uh, a more submissive uh, party. And, um, you know, I, I won't speak to which one I think is the dominant person uh, in this relationship sure. um, between Cornwall and Wells, but uh, there would have been a significant amount of bonding that would have occurred between them in terms of, you know, their work history, uh, their living arrangements, and, um, it, you know, based on past behavior for both of them, uh, it seems that they were like-minded in terms of their opinions of women mm-hmm. and uh, their how shall I say this their their opinions of women and also uh, their opinions of themselves. I'll. I'll mm-hmm just be honest, uh, 
extremely egotistical uh, individuals, which quite frankly is a mask for uh, deep, deep seated uh, masculine insecurity. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, they're, they're pathetic cowards as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now what about these cowboy hats? And I know sometimes it can, you can just be in that area or, or, you know, you're, you know, they, but they came, they came in wearing cowboy hats, right? Was that, mm-hmm. was that a common theme in that area? Does anybody know? It's, it's definitely not. You know, there are, there are clubs in, in and around Jacksonville where you might find that, but at, the the witnesses at Applebee's said that they definitely stood out in that crowd when they came in wearing cowboy hats. Mm-hmm. You know, we and it we've makes spent you a wonder a, if that was some kind of a go ahead. I'm sorry. I, well, I was just going to say we've spent a fair amount of time in and around Jacksonville, and it's not it's not a common article of clothing a cowboy hat. Now, I I own a few cowboy hats myself, and there are certain places that I'll wear them, but Applebee's and Jacksonville, I guess, wouldn't be a place I'd throw on a cowboy hat. Behaviorally, it speaks to the fact that they need to augment their appearance to uh, appear to be masculine. Okay. Okay, and the fact that they would both do that, that's interesting. It's like, you know, they talked about it. Here you wear your cowboy hat. I'm gonna wear mine. <laughs> you know, not to make light mm-hmm. of it, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So th- it, that it, that it is ra- very interesting. It raises the question as to was there another destination that they were planning to go that night? You know, that that question was never asked. Um, but were they just say pre-gaming at Applebee's with another destination in mind? I would like to know. I'd like to know everything about it. I'd like to know where that was, if there was a a final destination in their right. evening's plans. Right, the shooting range. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure, the shooting range. Yeah. On, okay. Sure, have, a, have a gun and go out on the town. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I find that very interesting, Sarah, that, that, you, that you share that, um, you know, there's usually one that's more of an aggressor or one that's more of the leader and one that's more of a follower in, in essence. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think, do you, do you think that um, one of them fears the other at this point, yeah. given what's happened? Yes, I think so. I think that, uh, you know, again, in these odd, uh, deviant criminal relationships, uh, you know, there is a fear element on the part of the person who is uh, more submissive in the sense that they don't want to, number one, disappoint, quote unquote, uh, the more dominant uh, partner. So they will, you know, rise to uh, different uh, challenges uh, put forth by that other person. They won't want to disappoint them and they won't want to betray them uh, for fear of 
being rejected by that more dominant figure in the relationship. Um, mm-hmm. So certainly there's an element of fear, but uh, not to the point I would say, um, you know, just in case I'm thinking in my mind uh, five steps ahead if, if there are to be additional charges filed down the road uh, and they come back across this interview, I want to make it very clear that this fear would not um, cause someone to act out in this way. For example, fear of disappointment um, would not cause that person to feel coerced into committing a crime. They're doing that of their own free will. Right. Okay. That's a great point. That's a very good point. Well, um, I want to thank you. This hour and a half actually flew. uh, And I want to thank you, Sarah, for coming on and, and for bringing this very comprehensive analysis without over without, you know, pinning it to the guys necessarily in this case, but it helps us understand um, the, per, the purview of the psychology um, and, 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 and how someone can actually even think this way and, and, and what likely, you know, their personalities are, in, in essence, for a lack of uh, a better, better terms. So I want to thank, thank you so you much so for coming much on for and having that with me. us tonight. Oh, Thank really you so appreciate much. it. Of course. I I hope more than anything answers will be found. I'm with you. Me, me too. Um well, well we'll keep plugging away at this and and see it doesn't stop until justice is found and that's just the way that it is. And Stephen and Renee I, I want to thank you both for coming on again. And uh, can you give the name of the webpage again? Certainly. It's morgansmilestogo.com. Okay. Thank you very much. I'm down to about 10 seconds. So thank you uh, both for coming on. And thanks for tuning in to Tanya Talks, where your voice is heard and your story is told. I'm Marty Oakley, CS Radio Network, and Stephen Burks, 89.9 FM Lighthouse Christian Radio. God bless all. And good night.